guys, if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles to the uh, Gospel of John, chapter uh, 15 this morning here. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is uh, where we're at this morning here in the New Testament. So um, what I want to do before we jump in, I kind of want to just sort of set the direction as to where we're heading um, to really kind of, first of all, point out to you guys several things in terms of the, 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 the text here. Uh, I've made this point before in the past few weeks that basically the way John writes, half of his entire gospel or half of his entire book has to do with the last week of Jesus' life, which is pretty, pretty interesting when you consider the fact there's 21 chapters. That means that, you know, good 11, 12 chapters of, of the entire gospel of John just simply have to do with the last seven days of Jesus' life. Uh, the other interesting thing I think is important to note is that where we've been the past few weeks... Um, or in other words, a quarter of John's book has to do with basically the last uh, couple days of Jesus' life and really predominantly has to do with this last message that Jesus talks about just before he goes to his death. Okay, so where we're at right now in the Gospel of John chapter 15, in terms of this last week of Jesus' life, um, most scholars believe that this whole circumstance takes place on Thursday which Jesus, according to scholars, believe that Jesus died on Friday. That's the case. This event that's happening on Thursday, Jesus is with His disciples. He's talking to them. This is during the occasion which Jesus um, becomes a servant and washes their feet and begins to just communicate to them beautiful truths about heaven, beautiful truths about God, beautiful truths about what it means to follow after God. In some ways, Jesus is basically sketching out what this revolution is going to look like. All right? Now, I use the, uh, the word revolution because in the minds of the apostles, this is what's about to happen. All right? There's a revolution that's about to take place. And, and I'll tell you the why, why I think that's happening is because if this is Thursday, that means that the very next day, Friday, none of the apostles, none of the di- disciples or the followers of Christ are ready for what's about to take place in less than 12 hours. None of them are aware of the fact that Jesus is going to be uh, arrested and be executed. No, none of them, Peter, James, John, to them, all they're aware of is literally this euphoria that they've been living off of for the past four days that started on Sunday, right? Four days earlier. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Everybody throws palm branches down and everybody proclaims Jesus as the new king. The way that Jews understood the Messiah was that the Messiah was also the king. And the way that Jews understood kings, especially in the context of first century, is that kings would come, they would establish righteousness, right, based upon all the prophecies of the Old Testament. The king would overthrow the oppressors, or get away, you know, do away with the bad guys. In this case, who were the bad guys? The Romans, right? The guys you've got to pay taxes to. Those are the bad guys. Right? They're the ones that are oppressing everyone. They're the ones that are walking around intimidating everybody with swords and spears and all sorts of you know, um, military garments. All right? Everybody's afraid of these guys. And so in the minds of the Jews, they're expecting the Mashiach, the Messiah, to come and he's going to set up a kingdom. He's going to be king. And what kings do is they have to overthrow any other kings that are usurping, usurping their authority. In this case... It's Caesar or Herod or any, other, uh, any of the other uh, local regionaries that are there in Palestine. So in the minds of the apostles, I'm just trying to point out to you guys, there's, there's, this, there's this tension. And the tension is between the expectation of the disciples and Jesus' revelation. Okay, so, so here, here's, here's where it's at. The disciples, they're expecting Jesus to now set up the kingdom, become a king. They're going to rule and reign with Him. Everything is going to be great. There's going to be this massive revolution, right? Um, this, is, this, is, this totally plays into why. When they're in the garden, right? One of the things, when, when they come to find Jesus getting arrested, Peter whips out a sword, starts you know, fighting people, because in Peter's mind, you're taking our king, and I'll fight for my king. That's Peter, right? I'll fight for my king. Peter ends up you know, getting rebuked by Christ. So what's happening is Jesus is setting out for them basically what this revolution will look like. What the revolution will look like. And it's interesting because you look at this, nowhere in Jesus' teaching does this revolution have anything to do with like torches, burning down buildings, attacking people, 
you know, sharpening swords, ninja moves, none of this. It has nothing to do with anything that anybody else would traditionally think about a revolution. It has nothing to do with it. It's a completely different revolution than anybody was expecting. So what does the revolution have to do with it? Jesus is going to basically unfold for them. Now, mind you, none of these guys understood what Jesus is talking about in these pages as being a revolution. None of them. They just didn't get it. They didn't understand it. In fact, again, to, to give you the, a bigger perspective, in their minds, they've been campaigning with Jesus for the past three years. Past three years. In their minds, they've come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. The king. But think about this, okay? Here you are, a fisherman. The fisher, you know, you're a fisherman just out taking care of your father's business. And all of a sudden, some great guy comes up, calls you, hey, why don't you be my disciple? And so for the next three years, what you see, what you hear, blows your mind. This guy's healing people, raising people from the dead, you know, speaking truths that you've never heard spoken before out of any other rabbi or priest or teacher or scribe or Pharisee, ever. And you're blown away by this. You're like, this guy called us. He's the Messiah. This is amazing. We are part of the inner circle, inner workings of this whole thing. Can you imagine? I mean, this is, this is amazing to these guys. In the night when Jesus unrobes himself, puts on the garments of a slave and washes their feet, he also throws out this little instruction to him. He says, hey, listen, by the way, I want to tell you guys, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. That, that is not what people who have campaigned for three years and have given their life, their energy, their time, their support, it's nothing that they, it's something they don't want to hear. They don't want to hear, you're leaving? They were frustrated by this. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. But Jesus continues forward with his message of what this revolution is going to look like. And he sets forth a whole new paradigm as to what's going to happen, what's going to take place. And, and the paradigm that Jesus is going to really establish and set forth as part of this new revolution is going to be basically unfolded for us in the next few verses. And I'll just put it like this. It's Jesus is this new paradigm. This new revolution has to do with two main things has to do with obedience to the Father. So obedience. And then secondly, love for one another. That's how things are going to change. That's what Jesus is saying. You, you want to know how we're going to take over? You want to know how things are going to change? You want to know how the world's going to shift? You want to know how things are just going to radically be altered? He says, obedience to the Father and love for one another. And he begins to speak to them about this. But he does so because Jesus is very illustrative. He walks and he's always kind of on the road, he's not the type of guy that kind of hangs out in like a you know a little classroom and teaches people. Kind of funny. That's how Western people do it, right? We meet in this big meeting room. We all hang out, talk, look at each other's back of our heads, and have some dude yell at us for an hour. You know, that's not what they did. They walked around San Luis and they stopped by the you know well. Take a look at the bear. He shoots water out of his foot. Isn't that glorious? That's like God. That's just like God. You know, or and that's how Jesus taught. And, and, and so what he does is the last verse of, yeah, like that. Last, last verse of chapter 14, it says, they, Jesus speaks to his disciples and says, let's go from here. So at this particular point, they've been in this upper room. Uh, Jesus washes their feet, and now they're ready to, to go, and they're, they're leaving now. And at this particular point, I guess, you don't know exactly what time it is, but I'm going to just suggest maybe it's around dusk, maybe 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock. We don't know exactly when. I just kind of picture in my mind, maybe there's a little bit of light left. They're walking on these dusty roads. They're leaving this region of the upper room, and they're making their way to the garden. The Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is basically going to take a handful of his disciples and say, we're going to go pray. We're going to go pray, and it's in that garden that Jesus is going to be arrested, and the rest of the events begin to kick into full force at that particular moment. So Jesus says, let's go from here, and let's walk. Where is he going to? He's going to the garden. The garden of Gethsemane, which literally means pressing. The pressing of the olive. And so, as they're walking there, because uh, first century Israel, Ju uh, Jerusalem, was covered by all sorts of uh, foliage and growth, especially vines. The climate there in Israel is very similar to like Paso Robles or Napa. Uh, very Mediterranean, very warm, very hot, perfect climate for grapes. All right? 
And as they're walking, I just envision Jesus walking by maybe a little vineyard. And here's this little vineyard. And he sees a vine. And he points to this little vineyard, points to this particular vine. And Jesus then says, listen, I've got a story for you guys. I'm going to tell you what it's all about. What life's all about. What this revolution's going to look like. How things are going to change. How the world will be transformed. You guys, listen up. That's what Jesus is basically saying. All right. So as we begin in verse 1, we're going to take a look at the first thing that has to do with this obedience, this concept of this. And Jesus says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Some of your translations might say the farmer. The uh, Greek word is Georgios. Anybody here named George? You're a farmer, or at least that's what your name is. Uh, and, and Jesus says, my Father is the farmer. My Father's the vine dresser. He's the one that tends to the vine. But Jesus says, as he looks at this vine, he says, I, I am the true vine. Now the emphasis, I think, is upon the word true. Jesus, I am the true vine. In, in Judaism, the concept of, of uh, a vine or a vineyard was very well known. The metaphor of a vineyard was very well known. Uh, one of the main reasons for this is because God actually describes Israel as being his vine. I want you guys to turn to two passages with me real quickly. First of which is Isaiah chapter 5. I want to just kind of show this to you because I think, again, if we're trying to really understand our Bibles clearly in order to be able to understand the message which Jesus is going to communicate, I think it's good for us to understand it from the way that Jesus' followers would have understood it. So when they hear Jesus say, I'm the true vine, they're immediately thinking of passages like Isaiah chapter 5. There's no question in my mind that's what they're thinking of. So Isaiah chapter 5 says this. Turn to myself. If you guys have a Bible, you can just open your Bible almost halfway and you're pretty much close to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 says this, beginning at verse 1. It says, Let me sing a song for my beloved, my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So Isaiah is writing this and he's basically singing this song that probably God is singing, this, this, this beautiful vineyard. He says, I want to sing a song about this vineyard. He says, My beloved had a vineyard. I think the beloved is a reference to God. God has his vineyard. The vineyard in this particular case is Israel. And Isaiah, if you are familiar with his uh, writings, he's going to basically now begin to prophesy woes against Israel. Basically, what Israel has failed to do. What Israel should have done but didn't do. He's going to begin to describe it for us. In verse 2, he's going to say what God has done for Israel, consequently, in the metaphor, his vineyard. Verse 2, he says this. He dug, he dug it and he cleared it of stones. He planted, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the middle of it. This idea of a watchtower is basically, typically in the middle of the vineyard. And it was a place where, you know, usually a watch, men would go up and kind of take a look around the vineyard, make sure people aren't, you know, stealing your grapes or animals are coming in there and eating them and stuff like that. He says he built a watchtower in the middle of it and he hewed out the, a wine vat and he looked for it to yield grapes. But it yielded wild grapes. Some of your translations might say sour grapes. Grapes were bad. Verse 3 says, And now the inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. In other words, listen up. Make sure that I'm making proper judgment. Listen to what I'm about to say. Is what God's saying. He says, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled down. I will make it waste, and it shall be pruned, and it shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns will come up, and they will also command, and I will also command the clouds, and they will not rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In other words, the picture that I think God is trying to communicate here is this. I did everything for Israel. My, my, my vine. My choice vine. I, I, I made sure I had the best soil. I made sure there were watchtowers there to protect it. I made sure that it was hoed and cut back and trimmed and tended and taken care of, that there were the proper caretakers over it. God says, I did everything for Israel to ensure that she would produce good grapes. But instead, Israel produced horrible grapes. Now think about it. The, the really only purpose for a grape plant is, is the fruit. Right? It's the fruit. The wood's really not good for anything. 
I mean, you can't make hardwood floors or build houses or boats. It just it's not worth anything like that. You can use the leaves and you can make dolmas. Mmm, yeah, that's good stuff, huh? You know what that is? Go to my favorite restaurant, Jaffa Cafe. All right, that's all I got to say. Jaffa, I'm hungry now. They're closed on Sundays. I'm bummed. Okay, so really when you look at it, a, a grape vine is worthless unless it produces grapes. So what God's saying is that it produced horrible grapes. And I did everything for it. So God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to judge it. And it's interesting, as you look at the, the story there, God says the, 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 the way this works out, or the fruit that God was looking for, the grapes, the choice grapes that God was looking for, was equivalent to what they should have been doing, which is loving one another, taking care of one another's needs, making sure that justice was being enacted. In other words, if people were being taken advantage of, someone should have stood up and said, this is wrong. Basically, being a spokesman for those that are hurting, those that are suffering, making sure orphans are tended to and widows are loved and cared for. God said, you guys didn't do that. And that was the fruit I was looking for, and you failed. So therefore, I'm going to bring my judgment. And that's what God says. Here's another verse. I'll read it to you real quickly. If you want to turn to you can, if you can write it down. Isaiah chapter 80, verse 14. He says this, Have regard for this vine. I think it's a, it's a cry from the heart of the psalmist saying, God, I'm praying for Israel, praying for your people. Have regard, do something. God, show up. It's basically a prayer for revival is what the psalmist is praying. Later on in about verse 18, it says this, Then we shall not turn back from you and give us life he says, God, give us life, and we'll call upon Your name. And he finishes this little section. He says, Restore us, O Lord of hosts, and let Your face shine so that we might be saved. So this is a, a cry from the psalmist's mouth likening Israel to a vine. He says, God, look upon Your vine. Revive us. Bring life back to us. Let Your face shine like the sun on us again, and let it bring forth fruit. God, do, do a work in our day. Change us. But if you look at the history of the people of Israel, regularly all you get is just failure. That's what happened. That's the story. That's, that's what consistently would happen. I mean, there are moments when Israel would, would do things okay and well, and revival would happen, and things would change and turn around. But it always, based upon another generation that came following it, they would revert back to the old ways. Sin would dominate. And it was this constant cycle. Uh, read the book of Judges. All right? That's exactly what the book of Judges is. It's this constant, horrible cycle that just keeps going and circulating itself over and over again like a, like a broken loop, constantly just saying, you know, they're doing okay, and now they're doing bad. Doing fine for a little bit, and then they're doing really bad. Over and over and over again. Until what happens is basically God says, I will judge Israel. There is a mounting judgment that will come upon Israel. So when Jesus is walking with His disciples out to the garden where He's about to be arrested, He sees this vine and He says to His disciples, I am the true vine. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, I am the true Israel. Everywhere Israel failed, I'll, I'll fulfill it. Everywhere Israel didn't accomplish God's good plan, I'll do it. Everywhere Israel could not do what they should have done or failed to do what they should have done, committed sins of, of, of commission and sins of omission, not doing things that they should have done, Jesus says, listen, I, I am the true vine. I will do for Israel what Israel has failed to do for herself. And I will be for my people what Israel has failed to be for God. But it goes way beyond the borders of Israel. And as if Jesus himself will go on to say, there's a judgment that is lying over the head of Israel because of their failure. It's as if part of this bigger picture, Jesus says, not only will I take the judgment that Israel deserves, but I will also be her Savior. I and the true vine. And then he goes on with this metaphor and just begins to, to, to build all this beauty into it. And, it's, and again, it's just this picture 
when we begin to realize that Jesus was not just some teacher. He wasn't just some guy that came along and had great things to say and good ethical and moral concepts to live by. But that Jesus is going way beyond the concept which the first century Jews had that is being just merely the Messiah or a Messiah. But Jesus is going to go way beyond to say that not only am I the Messiah, but I'm much more than the Messiah. I am your God. Come to not only take upon myself the judgment which you deserve because of your failure to bring forth justice and righteousness and fruitfulness, which I looked for and I hoped and I anticipated, and I did everything to ensure that would happen, but it didn't happen. But he says, I will also take upon myself your judgment. And consequently, set up a new system, a new paradigm, in which, by abiding in me, things will change. Things will change. So that's what he's going to go on to say. As we move on from this, Verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes, so that it may bear forth more fruit. Okay, real quickly, I just want you guys to, to know that this passage uh, has been kind of a troubling passage for a lot of people, a lot of theologians, because of statements like um, branches that don't bear fruit will be sent to the fire. I mean... That, if we're not careful how we understand that, sounds like what God's saying is that unless you're regularly bearing fruit and your life is really you know, great and things are going well and you're bearing all this fruit, unless you're living in this constant pattern of this, then you try to argue with God, you've got to realize that God's the one that has the pruning knife. And you don't normally want to argue with gods that have pruning knives. And if you're not careful, God will cut you off and throw you in hell because you didn't do all the things that He expected you to do. That's sometimes how that can be interpreted. I don't think what Jesus is saying here is that bad Christians go to hell. Backslidden Christians go to hell. That's not what He's saying at all. Because that does not run consistently with the rest of the teachings of Christ. What I do think He's saying is what basically would later on become recognized as the visible church versus the invisible church. Meaning, this, okay? That's just kind of a fancy way of saying, especially even within this group. We can have a group of people that are, are actually part of the real church of Christ. They belong to Jesus. They abide in Christ. They're bearing fruit. Their lives are changed. They love Jesus. But even within this group, there are other people that claim to be Christian. You know, maybe they were born in a Christian home or their dad was an elder or whatever the case is. You know, whatever. You know, grandma prayed with them to receive Christ only because she promised a cookie. And, you know, and, and, and there's this mentality that maybe I'm a Christian because I go to church. But nobody really knows for sure, even within this room, who's really saved and who's not saved. I mean, we can judge based upon fruit, but the problem comes when we... And bottom line, it's not even our job to go around and be like, hmm, who's saved and who's not saved? Who's a Christian and who's not a Christian? It's funny, man. A lot of Christians do that, don't they? They live and they spend a lot of energy trying to figure out like, like who's righteous, who's not, who's messed up, and who's not. And what happens is it just becomes this hunt in futility. When Jesus just simply says this, listen, you abide in me, you bear fruit. If you don't abide in me, you're not going to bear fruit. There are going to be those that don't bear fruit that are going to be clipped off, thrown in the fire. And I think probably this is a reference to a guy like Jesus. He's been with Jesus for three years. He looked like he was part of the team, but he wasn't. He was not part of the team. All right? And what happens is his true colors are revealed. He's got a reversible jersey. And everybody comes to find out he really was not part of the original team. And Jesus says this to his disciples. At this time, Judas is already gone. He says, listen, there are some that don't bear fruit. They don't bear fruit because they're not actually attached to me. They're not abiding in me. Therefore, my Father will cut them off and there will come a day where they will be cast away and they will be burned. And it's this picture that Jesus depicts of judgment. Okay? And I think, again, it's a reference to people that give the appearance of being a part of Jesus' community but really aren't part of Jesus' community 
and the true evidence is fruit, and the Father's the vine dresser. He's the true judge of fruit. Let me throw out one more thing, okay? When Jesus says things like this, He's I'm going to give you guys a parable of the kingdom. parable of the kingdom is this. You know, one night, some guy goes into the field and he plants a bunch of tares. And he says, guys come along and they're like trying to separate tares from the wheat. And then finally, he just says, listen, don't, don't spend all your time trying to separate tares from the wheat. The Father will do that in the final day. And it's funny to me because there's a lot of Christians today that spend a lot of energy trying to figure out who's a tear and who's a wheat. Why can't we just listen to what Jesus says and let the Father do that? Let us just focus our attention on being the community that Jesus calls us to be, which involves what Jesus says, obedience to the Father and love for one another. So he goes on to say that those that bear fruit, there's going to be times when they're going to be pruned. There's going to be times when they're going to be pruned. All right. Um, I, I, I am not a very good person to like plant plants. I don't even know what you call it. Green thumb, whatever. But I'm not a viticulturalist. I know that fancy word. I, I don't know much about this stuff, okay? Um, in fact, let me just tell you something here. This, I, this is actually a true, uh, true vine. I bought this from Home Depot yesterday. I planted it myself. Hopefully it won't die. Um, these grapes I bought from Ralph's this morning, all right? So this is totally fake, all right? It's real, but it's fake, all right? Uh, these aren't, aren't really grapes that are growing. So you're like, whoa, that thing looks sweet. Yeah, it's totally fake. It's deception, all right? Um, but it's my attempt to just try to point out the picture of fruitfulness that Jesus wants us to see and to realize that comes along by abiding in Christ and the vine. So there, there are times, Jesus says, when the vine will be pruned, right? The branches will be cut off. So what I've understood, though, is that what happens sometimes either at the end of a season when all the fruit's gone, typically the vine dresser will come and cut off almost everything, just leave like this empty stalk. Has ever like gone through Paso come a year? You know, when, when, not this time of year, but whenever it is. You know, and you just see these like dead stalks. Oh man, there's a whole like, you know, thing of dead vines. But you drive back like three months later and there's like tons of foliage on it. All right? Um, that's the picture. That God does that to cut back the dead stuff. But he also does it sometimes that when they're growing, you don't want just a bunch of foliage. Again, the, the goal of, of mine is the fruit, not lots of leaves, right? Not lots of greenery. And so what happens is, is if you've got a vine that has a lot of greenery and there's just a lot of long strands that are just producing green, you want to cut some of those off because all of the life from the vine that should be going into the fruit is actually going in, into, the, into the branch. You don't want that, so you cut that off so that the life will actually go into the production of the fruit. So Jesus is saying there's going to be times when the Father will come and He'll cut back areas in our lives in order so that we would be more fruitful. In order so that we would be more fruitful. Now think about this. All right? if, if vines could talk, if vines could talk, do they like pruning? Probably not. Now I would imagine anything that's going to go under the, underneath a knife is going to be painful. But that's the picture that God paints, that Jesus paints for us. There are going to be occasions in our lives where it becomes painful. And it's hard. And it hurts. And life is difficult. And things don't go the way that we plan. There's troubles all around us. I mean, it's, 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 our life is not what we had anticipated. Or our kids aren't turning out the way we expected. Or our job isn't going the way that we thought. It's hard. And Jesus' point is that there are gonna, those, those, those times are often attributed to the Father who's trimming us. He's cutting off things. He's cutting away things so that we actually would bear more fruit. That's the Father's goal. It's fruit. In fact, I can make the point that even from the very beginning, one of the very first commands that God gave Adam and Eve was what? Be fruitful and multiply. So one of the very first commands that God ever speaks to His own creation, made in His image, is be fruitful. Till the earth. And have lots of babies. Alright? That was God's command. Make lots of babies, and make lots of great things with the earth that I've given to you. And that was God's intention. Unfortunately, what had happened, sin enters into the whole thing, mars it, breaks it, destroys it, Somewhere inside of our heart, we become afraid of God. We run from God because we know that things are not right between us and God. 
and rather than using things that God has given to us to create for His glory, we use things that God has given to us to create for our glory. We become the center of all things. We do things for our glory, for our end, so that we would get props, so that we would get recognition, so that we would move ourselves into better places in this life. God says, no, that's not the way this works. The way this works is as you abide in the vine, the Father feeds His life through me to you, and you bear fruit. And there's times that I will cut off branches. That's painful, and it's hurtful, but it's ultimately to produce more fruit. Okay, the problem oftentimes that we have is that we are limited to just what's in our periphery. You know what I'm saying? We don't have the privilege of foresight. We don't know what will happen ten years down the road. We don't have any way of seeing how circumstances in your life right now, if you losing your job, have anything to do with the circumstance six years from now with you getting another job that lead to you getting married, that lead to you having a nice big family, that lead to you being blessed by God. We just don't see, we don't have the privilege of understanding how every little circumstance adds to this bigger whole of God's blessing, of fruitfulness in our lives. We just don't see that. So here's the problem. We go based upon our limited information and we judge. Right? We judge God. God, why are you screwing my life up? Right? God, why are you messing things up? God, why are things not happening the way I'd expect it. We are frustrated with God. And the reality is that we are literally basing everything upon a very limited perspective. God's saying, I'm the vine, Jesse. My son's the vine. And you're the branches that are attached to the vine. And you just to abide in me and you'll bear fruit beautiful picture of the relationship that God wants to have with us. By the way, here's one more thought that came to mind as I was reading this earlier last night. Was Here's the picture of God the Father, the vine dresser. Right? The garden. Jesus is not even on the level of being the vine dresser. He is, he stepped, to me it's this picture of Jesus stepping into this humility. Jesus himself actually becomes part of the branch part of the tree, part of the actual living organism in which life and fruitfulness will come out of. It's amazing to me. It's just this picture of Jesus stepping from the role of being caretaker over a vineyard and actually becoming a vine itself. And out of that, bearing forth the fruit that God desires to bring forth. As we move on, one of the things that we see next, about verse 3, it says this, it says, already you are clean. Because of the word that I have spoken to you, abide in me, and I in you, and the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is he who bears much fruit, for apart from me you guys can do nothing. So the picture that Jesus is trying to communicate is that, listen, there has to be this relationship. So he uses the phrase abide. The word abide is actually a beautiful word. It just simply means to make yourself home at. And, and the idea is that, you know, here you've got a, a, a branch that's connected to the vine, it's not, it doesn't seem out of place. It's just natural. It's just naturally there. It's just there. God has just placed it there, and there's this natural relationship that the, vine, uh, or that, the, that the branch has with the vine, which ultimately brings in all the minerals and vitamins and everything that it needs, water supply, to be able to bring forth the grapes. And, and one of the things you also notice about a vine is that you never see, like, straining forth fruit. Right? You never just see these things like pushing out fruit, like having to like work hard at it. It's just natural. Because it's the natural byproduct of what happens when a branch abides in the vine. So Jesus is saying, this is the type of relationship that, that I want to have with you guys. You abide in me. You stay next to me. You become part of me. We have this relationship with each other. And as you do that, fruit will come naturally. That's what will happen. Then Jesus says this little statement. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to me, honestly guys, I, I, I think it's one of those verses in the Bible 
that a lot of times we really don't believe, or if we do believe, I mean, if we can at least give lip service to it, we don't live as if we've been affected by it. I'll tell you what I mean. I mean, if we really believe, like what Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. What's he talking about? Like, what are the specific things he's talking about? Is he talking about, like, apart from me, you can't, you know, lift forth the Bible? Or apart from me, you can't, you know, worship right? Possibly. I think all those things might be incorporated. But I think way even beyond, I think this goes way broader. I think Jesus is actually saying, apart from me, there's nothing in this world that you can do. In other words, everything that you have, every ability you possess, every talent you have, has been given to you, gifted to you by God. So, so here's what happens in this life, okay? Here's how twisted things get. There are people that have certain very special talents, very special abilities. Let's say an example. Someone's got a very gifted ability of writing. Very talented. You know, they have an ability to just kind of wordsmith. They put words together and, and words just sound amazing. They say things or they read things or you know, do a poem or something like that. It's just amazing. How can someone put words together like that that articulates such emotion? Or somebody who has a very amazing eye being able to take pictures, really good at photography. Here's what happens. We have these certain abilities and talents that have been given to us. And the reason why God gives us these things is so that by being gifted with these things, we would use all of the giftings that God has given us so that God would be glorified in our lives. That God would be viewed as great by our actions, by our activities, by the things that we do. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be some sort of a musical talent. Um, it can be, you can be like a really good architect or a really good musician or a really good artist or whatever the case is. These are talents that God has given to us so that He would be glorified through us. But instead what happens is we use these talents and we use these gifts for our own end our own glory. And we take the credit for the things that God Himself has given to us. Here's what happens, guys, in, in our lives. This is all part of the makeup of the fall. We live for ourselves. And not for the glory of God. And this is part of the problem. This is all of the problem in creation. Is that we live for ourselves as the end. I've mentioned this before, okay? Some of you guys, good looking, right? Good looking. Which of you had the option of saying, God, two things I want, good looks and San Luis Obispo. And here you got both of them. I mean, nobody had the opportunity of requesting this stuff. God sometimes, randomly of course, just calls some people to have these. Others, he gives great talents and abilities and other things that outrival even looks. All the way around. The funny thing is, at the end of the day, we have these tendencies to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, aren't I beautiful? Or aren't I talented? Or aren't I great? And we use and we leverage these things for our own end. And we fail to realize that Jesus makes statements like this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything you have, gift in my gracious hand to you so that I would be glorified in you, by you, through you, and that you would receive joy from me. That's where Jesus is going with all this. Everything. Like I said, I wonder if we really believe that. If we really see that. That everything that we have has been a gift from God to be given back to Him for His glory, for our joy. So Jesus goes on to say, and about verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch. And he withers. The branches are gathered, they're thrown into fire, and they're burned. He says, And if you abide in me, my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you wish, and it will be done. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So first of all, in verse 6, again, I think it's a reference to Judas, who has not abided in Christ, who actually was never really a part of this community of Christ. And he made that evident, and, and proven by the fact that there is no good fruit. And that he was actually going at this particular point right now to betray Christ. And then he finishes up this little section here in verse 7. He says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. 
So what happens now is he makes this connection. And this connection is between abiding in the vine, bearing fruit, and prayer. This is an amazing connection when you think about this. That somehow, for some reason, God actually connects prayer and answered prayer to what it means to be abiding in the vine. And I think if, if we understand this clearly, what, what it does is it opens, I think, a whole new avenue for us to actually try to understand what prayer is. Because sometimes I think we, we approach God with, with a lot of really bad misconceptions about prayer. Right? I mean, sometimes we think prayer is like how to get my will done. You know, how to accomplish the things that I want to do. You know, if I just pray hard enough, long enough, beg God enough, make deals with Him. You know, talk about making deals. Like, God, if you could just do this for me, I promise I'll give you the next year of my life back to you. Right? And sometimes we have these radically just horrible concepts about prayer. I'll give you an example, all right? I don't have any problem putting myself down, so I'll do it right now. Um, when I was around 18, I mean, I grew up in Huntington Beach. I started surfing when I was like about 14. I just, I surfed all the way through high school. When I was about 18, I started working full time. And as a basic part of my routine every day, I'd wake up, five, get to the ocean, Huntington Beach, and surf like right before the sun went up. And I surfed four or five days a week. It was great. I don't surf that much anymore. I wish I did, but gas is too expensive. Um, and, and, and I remember one of these times when I was out surfing in, in the morning. I felt really good. I was having a good morning. I was really stoked. And uh, waves were really good. And I'm just like, Jesus, you are awesome. I think like dolphins came up. I'm like, it's just like one of those magical moments, you know, where like everything's in alignment, stars, everything. I'm like, this is awesome, right? I was feeling really pumped and uh, just had a good wave. And people were just starting to paddle out. And, and every morning, Huntington Beach, surf, uh, Huntington Beach High School would have like the surf practice. So all these kids were coming out, and I'm like 18. You know, to them, I'm like, I'm like this old timer. And, um, and, and so I'm out there, and, I, and I'm like, Jesus, I, I just want to share you with people out here. I'm like, I'm so stoked on you right now. I'm like, Lord, here's the deal. Give me a really good wave, and help me have like a lot of good moves on it. And then, and then these people will see me, and they'll think, wow, that guy's good. And, and maybe I can leverage that to like share the gospel with them, Right? That was at least the way my, 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 my bad prayer went. So um, I, I took off on a wave, and I pearled. I mean, I just totally got destroyed. Really humbled, paddling back out, felt really humiliated. And, and I'm, later on in the afternoon, I'm just thinking, man, that's kind of a bummer. You know, I, just, I, was, I was ready to like, to close this deal with God, right? I, mean, I was ready to like, tell people about Christ. But I didn't get a good wave, you know? And, and, and the bottom line is, is that I, I didn't know what prayer was. That's not prayer. I'm like looking for opportunities to spend things, to glorify myself. Sometimes, how many times do we like we pray like that? Prayer is not how I can leverage God to get my actions done or get my wills, my will accomplished. Prayer is, is, is for the branch who humbly abides in the vine. Says God. Help me become fruitful so that you would be glorified and I would be satisfied. There's a lot of times that we pray and a lot of times we, we don't see results in our prayer. Sometimes we get frustrated. And the funny thing is, is that when this happens, how many times do we like, get upset with God? I mean, how many times do we like, look at God and we're like, God, what's your problem? How come you're not answering me? I want to give you guys a couple examples as to why I think a lot of times our prayers are not answered. Just a couple of real quick ones. First of all, I think a lot of times we pray and we're not praying according to God's will. First John 5.14 is the Bible reference. It says this, If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Jesus says, listen, as you ask according to God's will, not my will, not what I think is best for me, God will answer. So it's got to be in that sense according to His will. So sometimes I don't think we receive answers to our prayer. Maybe we do. Maybe the answers are no. I'm looking for yes. And, and they're not exactly what we expect because we're not praying according to God's will. The second thing, um, Psalm 66, I think one of the another reasons why sometimes we don't see our prayers answered is because we've got sin in our heart. We're bitter with people. We're angry. We're not living the life of Christ. We're just, you know, we're, we're looking for ways to just move forward our own agenda. And, and sometimes we're not, we're not looking for ways to bless other people. That's the way that God lives. And we have sins of omission, sins of commission. And here's what Psalm 
Psalm 66 says, is if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Another reason why I think sometimes our prayers aren't answered is because our motives are messed up. Uh, James 4 verse 3 says this, you will ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you might spend it on your own pleasures. So sometimes we've got these wrong motives. Um, and we ask God, God, do something for me. God, do this for me. It doesn't happen the way that we expect. It's because we have these wrong motives. Here's another example. Sometimes we pray and we just really don't believe God wants to do something. We don't have faith. Here's what Jesus says in uh, Mark chapter 11. He says, All things for which you pray and ask, believe, have faith, that you will receive them. And they will be granted to you. So there is a sense where we've got to believe. God, I believe you. I trust you. You don't, you don't have to have great faith. It's not about having great faith. It's about having little faith in a great God. It's just about, God, you're a great God. I think you want to help me out here. So, Lord, just help me. That's faith. It's that little faith. Like Jesus is like a mustard seed that will move mountains. The final one is this. Oftentimes, God um, doesn't answer our prayers immediately because of testing. In other words, He wants to test us. It doesn't make God bad. It just means that sometimes God... As a, as a heavenly Father wants to draw out of us greater faith, greater confidence, greater trust in Him. Here's, here's an example of this. It says in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, Jesus says this. He says, pray at all times and don't lose heart. So as if Jesus anticipates, there's going to be times when we pray, we pray really hard, but we get really discouraged. And we lose heart. And we drop out. And we stop. Right? And Jesus says, Pray, but don't lose heart. There's going to be times when the Father might not come to you knocking on the door the first five times. But don't lose heart because He might come the eighth time. Right? Or the twelfth time. No matter how many times do we miss. And here's the biggest reality check, is that for some reason, in God's good, overwhelming providence, chooses to use prayers of His people to accomplish His plan. I don't even claim to understand that. But it's according to God's plan. He just says, listen, whatever you ask in My name, I'll give it to you so that the Father would be glorified and you bearing much fruit. Okay, take a look at, as we move on from here, about verse uh, 9, I think is where we're at. He says, if the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy might be in you, and so that your joy might be full. I wonder how many of us really believe that. Listen to it again. What Jesus is saying is part of this whole revolution. Again, it's not a revolution that the way the apostles were expecting it, whereby a leader is going to go in and overtake the oppressor's authority and set up a new kingdom based upon old principles. That's not how the kingdom is going to work, Jesus is going to say. The kingdom is going to work in a vastly different way. That's why when Jesus is, is questioned by Pilate, are you a king? Where's your kingdom? Like my kingdom's not of this world. And I don't think he's basically saying, listen, i got subjects and they're up there somewhere. Like up there in the heavens. That's not what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that my kingdom, my rules of engagement, the way that I work, even if I communicate it to you, you just, they don't fit into your book. You wouldn't understand them. It's not of this world. Our revolution is a revolution of obedience to the Father and love for His people. That's the revolution that Jesus is going to say. And He points out very clearly, He says that the reason why the Father does these things is so that as we abide in Him and as we bear fruit, our joy is maximized. Our joy is full. This is so contrary to the way that we are oftentimes wired to think, isn't it? We, we oftentimes think that you know joy is found by autonomy. Right? the less yoke of any other authority I have on me, the more free I am. I mean, isn't that how that we think? We, we actually fool ourselves into, into believing 
that joy somehow or happiness in life or uh, contentedness in life is somehow connected to freedom and autonomy that I have from any other outside relationship. In other words, I am most free when I am able to achieve the maximum of my potential. Jesus says, that's not the way it works in my kingdom. He says, there is an order to my kingdom. And the order does involve authority. Ah, this word scares a lot of people. Authority. Ah, authority. Where's he going with this? Guys, if I can just put it this way, if you live a life without recognition of authority, you don't live the Trinitarian life of God. It's just that simple. Every command that Jesus gives to His disciples, every command, is a command that's been fulfilled by Him. Every one. When Jesus says, Abide in Me! Obey Me! He says that because He can also point to the fact, I obey My Father. But Jesus says, do what I say. He can say that because He can say, I've done everything the Father said. When Jesus says, love one another, He can say that because Jesus says, I have loved everyone. Undeserving included, which is really the whole race. All the way to the end. Everything Jesus says as a command. He Himself takes upon Himself. He says, I'll do it. And I have done it. There is an order. There's an authority that's there. But Jesus says, this is the way it works. Freedom, joy, is not found in this illusion in which we think the more I'm free to do what I want, the more joy I have. Jesus says, that's not joy. That's not how joy is found. Joy is found in being in union with the Father being in union with me and loving those whom the Father loves. I just don't think a lot of times we, we, we get that or we believe that. But that is Jesus' intent is to bring about joy in our lives. Now I realize, I realize this thought sometimes is very scary because some of us have been hurt. Right? Some of us have been hurt. You know, we've been in relationships with people, people maybe that we've trusted, people that we've looked at, people that we thought might have something to offer us and to help us. And they let us down. They hurt us. They hurt us deeply. And what happens sometimes is we go in these little shells and we just protect ourselves. And we feel the best way to just be safe is to not let anybody in. The problem is that you will never let yourself out. You just find that those little places become very lonely. Very lonely. Father, community with those who love. That's how it works. And therein is where joy is found. As he goes on, he says this, kind of as we almost finish this up. Whoops, sorry. Verse 12, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Because you didn't choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in my Father's name, it may be given to you. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. Um, so here's the picture. Here's what's happening here. Jesus is basically communicating. He says, listen, how all of this works, how all of this functions is, I have called you guys. I have called you. And it's almost as if he goes back to the regular book. It's as if he goes back to the beginning when his disciples were fishermen or whatever they were doing by vocation. He says, I called you guys. Don't you remember that? You didn't call me. You didn't come searching for me. You didn't come looking for me. But I went looking for you and I called you. We, have, we need to just do an exorcism right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Anyways, 
So here's what Jesus is communicating, is that part of this whole system, the way this works, is I've called you. But what he does is it was, it was very uncommon. In fact, hardly ever would a rabbi ever look to his disciples and say, listen, we're on the same par now, we're friends. It was always, always viewed as a unique relationship where you were rabbi and they were disciples. You were teacher, they were follower. You were master, they were servant. So here what Jesus does in this little story is phenomenal because he goes on and he says, listen, you guys were my servants. That's the relationship between rabbi and disciple, between uh, you know, teacher and student. Um, what qualities do we typically look for in people in order for them to become a friend? I mean, if, if you're honest with yourself, and you're just like, okay, I want to be friends with somebody who fill in the blank. What, what, what fits the criteria for friends? For some examples. Yeah. Clean? Good man. <laughs> like antibacterial clean? Okay. Um, I, I think you can be honest. That's awesome. What else? What else? Okay. Same interest. Good. What else? Honest people that are honest. So we, we obviously want people that aren't going to lie to us, right? Well, I don't think some of us do. You're a great person. You're my friend. Right? You're really good looking. All right. Let's be friends. You know? Um, yeah. Value honesty. What else? There for you when you're when you're down. So there's someone that's always there, right? And they're going to be there. They're sacrificial. They're laying their life down. What else? Humble. Funny. What else? I mean, think about it. People that are your friends right now. What are some of the things that you actually look at in them? You're like, I would be their friend. Other people that you might just avoid. kind of hard, isn't it? Because when you think about it, when you get down to the bottom of it, I think if you can sort of deduce it all down, the two main things that we typically look at in terms of determining who is not going to be our friend, we boil down to this. Either one, they have something good to offer us, right? Something good that they can offer us. They're loving, they're kind, they're there for us when we're down, they're humble, whatever. I mean, those, those are things that we look at like, ah, oh, I don't have a lot of that, but I value those things. I need those things. I'll take you as my friend. But another thing I think we oftentimes typically look at that determines friendship are perceivable qualities in that person that actually get this.
Jesus says, this new revolution that I'm calling you to is about abiding and about love. It has to do with you loving the Father, clinging to me, and loving those whom he loves. You guys, I've said this before. I said this a couple weeks ago, last week. I mean, as a church, what, what do we want to be known as? I mean, what do we really want to be known as? What do you want to be known as in your life? I mean, honestly, what, as, if you're a Christian, what do you, you want people to know you as? You know, the funny thing is, I've never met somebody that is like, you know what, I love clicky places. I love walking into a room and feeling totally outcast. I love that. I love feeling really insecure. It's wonderful. I love sitting in a corner and having nobody say hi to me. And yeah, this is weird. Nobody lives like that. All right? But how do we change that? How do, we change, how do you change that? I think it's based upon and locked into this whole revolution that Jesus says, here's how we're going to change You treasure the things that the Father treasures. And you value those whom He values. You love them. Because we're never going to make it into becoming a church, I think, that Jesus wants us to be or be people that Jesus wants us to be unless we acknowledge the fact that oftentimes our love is really only reserved for people that offer us something of a benefit or are actually like us. You have to recognize that. And then acknowledge that, confess that to Christ, and just say, Jesus... I want to be like you. I want to be connected to the vine. One final thing I want to say. There's a danger here right now. Here's the danger. The danger is looking at what we're doing or maybe what we're not doing and saying, ah, the way that we change this is we just do better. Right? We just love better. You know, go take a homeless guy out to lunch and buy him a burrito. Say, see, there, I'm doing it. Right? I'm doing it. That's just legalism. It's legalism. It's a way of just looking at our actions and saying, see, I, I got fruit. I'm not talking about somehow modifying your behavior. I'm not talking about somehow changing your actions per se. But what I am saying, it's a matter about looking at your life as a whole and saying, how am I right here? How am I right here? Am I connected to the vine? Am I connected to this? Am I growing out of this? Am I submitted to the vine? See, the issue really is not just so much, I-, I hate people. It's not the issue. Or I don't love my husband, or I don't love my kids, or I don't love my wife, or I hate my boss, or there's people I just want to kill. <laughs> That's not really the issue. Those are symptoms, guys. The real issue is, I, I don't want to abide. I don't want to abide. And the fruit of that comes out in alternative ways. And the only remedy is to just cast ourselves upon God's mercy and say, God, I need you. Change me. Help me to abide in the vine. God, you're the vine dresser. Prune away areas of my life. That's going to be painful. That's a hard prayer sometimes to pray. But you guys, bottom line, I, I hope that we're a church. I hope that we're Christians here that actually, at the very core of our being, says, you know, we want to be like Christ. We don't want to just be this legalized group of people that are known by the things and the deeds and the actions that we do, but that we would be a group of people that just say, I, I want Jesus to be seen in my life. Do you know that means that sometimes our hands are going to get dirty? Sorry. I'm just like you, though. That's just like me. <laughs> okay? I don't drink out of people's sodas. I don't drink your water bottle. If you're like, hey, I got water... I ask you, did you drink out of it? Yeah, I did. Oh, thanks. No, thank you. Um, I'm just like that. But the issue is, with God's help, can we just recognize, man, we need to embrace one another in love. Not as an action of legalism, but out of the life of Christ flowing in us and through us. That's it. We're going to finish. We're going to finish this morning by communion. We're going to have... Uh, Dave, come on up. He's going to lead us in a few songs of worship. And we're going to respond right now by just 
um, singing some songs of worship to the Lord. The reason why we sing, really, is because uh, a natural part of just loving is, is expressing, right? I mean, when you love something, you express it. We're, we're most passionate about things that we're like, really excited about. That's why newborn or parents have newborns. They're always like whipping out pictures, like, check it out. Look at Junior, isn't he cute? You know, and because they're really excited about it. That's awesome. That, that's a form of praise. They're praising something they're very passionate about. And that, that's what praise is, man. When we recognize what Jesus has done for us, stepping into our world, and how he's changed our lives, it, it, what, the natural expression is just, God, you're good. Thank you. So we'll respond to God by singing some songs of worship. We'll also respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. Keep your money. We just want you guys to know Christ. This is a way for us as a part of this body just to give back to the work that God's doing. And uh, also we'll respond to the Lord if you're here and there's just anything that's going on in your life. Maybe God has spoken to you in some area and you just want to get things right and you realize, I haven't been abiding in the vine. I have not been abiding in the vine. And you want to, you want to change that. We've got a little area right here. I'm going to encourage you. Maybe go up to the front. If you want to have someone pray for you, great. If not, I want you to just get on your hands and knees and just worship the Lord. Meet with Him. We'll also celebrate and, uh, by communion. And we do this by coming forward and partaking the bread or uh, taking the bread and taking the cup and just partaking um, as we feel led, as we worship. If you're here and you're not a Christian, meaning Jesus is not your Savior. You don't view Him as your God. You have not submitted. There's no relationship between you and God. I encourage you, don't partake of the communion. Man, there's a lot of things that we can do together as a big group. Sing songs together. We can read Bible verses together. But one of the things that we do together that's sort of family, family time, is communion. All right? The Bible's pretty clear that part of communion is a recognition that you're in this community, Christ. And by being in this community of Christ, we're part of this, this thing which Jesus laid His life down for His friends, and He calls us into this beautiful relationship with Himself. And the emblems of that is the bread and the cup. And we partake of that to remember this beautiful communion that Jesus brought us into. So, I'm going to pray. We'll sing a few songs of worship. We'll do this. And then uh, we'll dismiss you guys. Okay? Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are the true vine. And that you have done for Israel and for the whole world what we could have never done. You produce good fruit. Righteousness. You lived a perfect life. And Jesus, you paid the judgment for us on the cross. So God, I just ask you right now that you would help us to be full of love for Jesus. And if there's areas in our lives that we just need to repent of and deal with best and have made right with you, then God, may we do that right now. Take communion and seek you and have you change us.